Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 72 of the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. God answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see this kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we, uh, we do desire your blessing to be with us, Lord. Um, not the blessing of riches, not the blessing of wealth, not the blessing of comfort and ease, but the blessing of realizing more fully how holy you are. The blessing of seeing more fully the grace and the compassion and the mercy of our God that's been demonstrated through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The grace of seeing our sin more clearly and seeing our need of a Savior in a more pronounced manner. God, would you bless us this morning as we sit under your word? No good thing will come of this if you do not attend the preaching and the hearing of your word. And so, God, I pray that you would come and make your presence known among us by opening our understanding to receive the truth of your word by filling us with the Spirit of Christ so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that we would be rooted and grounded together in love and by comprehending the greatness of your love for us in Jesus, Lord, we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, would you please work in and among us unto that end that you would be honored and glorified that we would be built up in our faith in Christ, 
that believers would be encouraged, that the sinners and the lost among us would be saved. That we would walk away from this time together knowing you more fully than we do now. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. We pray for that blessing for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are uh, continuing on in this little mini-series, I guess, within the Gospel of John, at least within John chapter 3, which is titled, You Must Be Born Again. This is part three of our time considering what Jesus has to say about the new birth in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Really, John 3, verses 1 to 8 is primarily what we're focusing on. In verses 1 to 8 in John chapter 3, Jesus makes clear that in order to belong to the kingdom of God, we must be born again. Now, we've looked at uh, the fact in, in the previous weeks that Being born again is not something that we do when we clean up our lives or when we turn over a new leaf or when we decide to be moral people, when we decide to do good things in society or we simply choose to follow Jesus. That's not what happens in the new birth. The new birth enables us to do all of those things for the glory of God with a heart of love and in true faith faith for Him. But the new birth happens prior to any of that. Jesus says three times in verses 1 to 8 that we must be born again. And he tells us, don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Within the new birth, we we must experience, we must personally experience this radical spiritual transformation if we would be a part of the kingdom of God. Now, there's no way to dance around that reality. There's no way to uh, minimize the severity that Jesus attaches to this teaching because he says, you can't be a part of the kingdom of God unless you have personally been born again. So we're talking about a matter of eternal consequence when we're looking into the issue of the new birth. Now that brings us, that even forces us to ask the question, how then can I know if I have experienced the new birth? If the new birth is so foundationally important, so fundamentally necessary in order for me to live a life of fellowship with God and to be a member of His kingdom, then how can I know if I actually have experienced the new birth? Is it just a feeling? Is it something that I'm convincing myself of? Or is it deeper than that? Well, according to the scriptures, I believe that God would have us know whether or not we've been born again. And the way that we come to know if we have been born again is by looking for the fruit or the evidences of the new birth in our lives. We saw that really from John chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus tells Nicodemus, don't marvel that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going, but you hear it sounds. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Right there, Jesus makes this parallel in using the wind as an illustration to help us understand how we can discern when the Spirit of God is causing us to be born again. How do we know when we've been born again? 
Well, we know by paying attention to the effects of the Holy Spirit blowing in upon our lives with the winds of regeneration, causing us to be born again. We may not know when and where the wind of the Holy Spirit will blow in the, to cause the new birth, but we can hear and feel its effects. I appreciate the way that the 1689 Baptist Confession puts this in chapter 18, paragraph 2. It says that our infallible assurance of faith is founded upon the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit unto which God's promises are made. In other words, God makes promises to us that those who fear His name will be preserved. God makes promises to us that those who love Him will be kept. All things will work together for good for those who love Him. God promises grace and favor towards those who fear Him and towards those who turn away from sin out of godly fear. Those inward evidences of grace come with promises from God. And when we find those inward evidences of grace in our own lives, we can be assured, we can be confident that God has begun the work of salvation in us. And we truly are His people. So, as we get into this, how can I know if I've experienced the new birth? There are three things I'm going to draw out of John chapter 3. We saw one last week, we're going to look at number 2 today. Next week we're going to come back to look at number 3. We saw last week in John chapter 3 verse 3 that one way that we can know whether we've experienced the new birth is by the fact that the new birth enables us to see the kingdom of God. And we discussed what that means. That means that we come to the point through the new birth when we see in Christ what we were not able to see before. So maybe like Nicodemus, we were someone who thought that Jesus was important. Maybe we saw him as a, a good teacher, even as Nicodemus refers to him as rabbi. Maybe we simply saw him as a miracle worker, someone who, done, who has done mighty deeds in the name of God. But apart from the new birth, we were not able to see what ultimately matters when we look to Christ. We were not able to see him in his glory. That's what John says in John 1.14 we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Before the new birth came, we were not able to see glory in Jesus. We may have seen very uh, significant things about Him, but we were not able to see Him as truly precious. We were not able to see Jesus as really and truly mighty. We did not see the kingdom of God in Him, nor did we feel our souls thrust towards Him in holy allegiance. To Him as our King. There was no draw. There was no pull. There was nothing that we saw in Jesus that enabled us to turn away from the things of the world in order to live our lives for His glory. As John 1.5 tells us, in our fallen state, we were blind to these things. And so when the Holy Spirit blew in upon us with the winds of the new birth, all of a sudden our spiritual eyes were open and we were able to see, we were enabled to see something in Jesus that we could not see before. And even though our experience of how we came to realize that might look different, it'll be different for each one of us. Even though our experience of realizing that, that that has happened in our lives might look different, 
If it has happened to us, that is evidence that we have been born of the Spirit of God. If we see the glory of Jesus in the gospel. You guys follow me there? That was last week. We together on that or did that sound new? If that sounded new, I'm in trouble. I'm not doing my job very well. All right, so number two. The second evidence that Jesus hints at here in John chapter 3. It's just a hint here. And it's more fully developed throughout the rest of the New Testament. But the, the second evidence of having been born again of the Spirit of God that Jesus hints at here is seen in John chapter 3 verse 5. Where in the new birth we're told that we're, we're not only enabled to see the kingdom of God, but also when we have been born again, we are enabled to enter the kingdom of God. John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now that means that the new birth must bring with it a spiritual awakening that does enable us to enter the kingdom of God. Now most often when believers think about what it means to enter the kingdom of God, they think of it primarily in terms of something that's going to happen in the future, right? So, example, Matthew 25, 34, at the day of judgment, Jesus says he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, and he is going to invite the sheep to come in and to inherit the kingdom of God, to inherit, to receive the inheritance that has been prepared for them from the foundation of the world. So receiving the kingdom and entering into the fullness of the kingdom is definitely something that will happen in the future. However, the Bible teaches us that those who will enter the kingdom of God on that day are those who have already begun to enter the kingdom of God now. You follow me on that? Blank stares. Even though the Bible speaks of a day when we will fully and completely enter into the kingdom of Christ, it also tells us that the only ones who are going to be allowed to enter into that kingdom then are those who have already entered into that kingdom in some measure now. So for example, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, we find Paul describing what it means to be born again. This is something that happens when the Spirit of God causes us to be made new creatures in Christ. And he describes it in terms of having been rescued out of one kingdom and having been transferred into another kingdom. You are rescued from the domain of darkness and you are transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. The Son of His love, literally in the Greek. That, that is talking about actually entering into that kingdom. And notice what Paul says there. He doesn't say that this is something that's going to happen in the future. He says this is something that has already happened in the past. We have already been transferred into this kingdom if we truly have been saved. When did that happen? On Colossians 1.6, you'll discover, if you read that, you'll discover when that happened for these Colossians. It happened when they heard and understood the grace of God in truth. What enabled them to hear and understand the grace of God in truth? Being born again. 
When they were born again, they were transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. They became members of it even at that point. This is why Paul can say in Philippians 3, I think it's 3.20, that our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior, Jesus Christ, who will conform the body of our lowly state into conformity with the body of His glory at His coming. We are already citizens of the kingdom of God if we are believers in Christ. So, according to Jesus and according to the rest of the teaching of the New Testament, one evidence that we have been born again is that we have begun to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Here's the question that preaching professors in seminary love to taunt their students with. So what? What does that mean? Wonderful. Being born again means that you are now unable to enter the kingdom of God. But what in the world does that actually look like? As we're trying to understand what it means to have been born again. And as we're trying to discern in our own lives whether or not we have experienced that new birth, whether or not this has actually happened to us, I wanted to try to think about the most practical ways that we could discuss what it means to enter into the kingdom of God now. We can envision more clearly what it means to enter into that kingdom then, on that day. Full freedom from sin, Receiving bodies of glory conformed to the glory of Christ Jesus, welcomed in, actually physically welcomed in as resurrected saints to enjoy the fullness of God's presence. Where Revelation 22, we will see Him face to face. We will forever be with our God. He will be our God. We will be His people and His dwelling place will be among us. We will dwell with Him forever in a new heaven and a new earth, a place where righteousness dwells according to His promise. That's what we're waiting for. And that's, that's, we can envision what it means to enter into the kingdom of God then, but what does it mean to enter into the kingdom of God now? As I said, I, I was trying to think of the most practical ways to discuss this with you, and I came up with two, uh, two ways of thinking about what it means to enter into the kingdom of God that have practical bearing upon our everyday lives, Okay? Now, what I have here is nowhere near exhaustive, by the way. I'm sure some of you guys will come up and say, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? It's like, I, I know, I know, but I'm limited on my time. What are the most practical, the most helpful ways to think about what it means to enter into the kingdom of God? I've got two of them. Number one, to enter into the kingdom of God, and this is very practical. Don't think this is merely theoretical or hyper-spiritual, Okay? It's very practical. To enter into the kingdom of God now means that you have been delivered from the power of Satan and he no longer has a hold on you. Now, I should hear some amens to that. Either that or you're not spiritually in tune enough to understand what that means. To enter into the kingdom means that you have been delivered from the power of Satan, and he no longer has a hold on you. Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 2, it talks about us in our lost and fallen state. And how does it describe us? 
It describes us as sons of disobedience in whom the spirit of the prince of the power of the air is now at work. That's what we are in our fallen state. That's what every unbeliever is in this world. It is a subject to the will of the devil. He or she is. But when God comes and makes us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, when he comes and he brings about that awakening, that spiritual renewal of the new birth, the power of Satan to cause us to do his will and to work in us to do his pleasure as sons of disobedience, that power is shattered. The moment that we are brought up out of death and into life in Christ, we are delivered from the power of Satan to cause us to get us to do his will. That's one way we're delivered from the power of Satan. The second way, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. In Christ, Satan has lost the power of death over you. Amen. <laughs> Satan has lost the power of death over you. Verse 14, it says that the devil had the power of death. Now that doesn't mean that he had the power to sentence anyone to eternal death. It doesn't mean that he had the power to deal out death in hell as a punishment. What it means is that he had the power to demand death upon those guilty sinners. He had the authority to work death into sinners, to increase it in their lives. Verse 14, it tells us that he uses that power to enslave people through the fear of death. So he has the power of death, and he wields that power by causing people to be afraid of death. And he holds them in slavery like that. That is the devil's power of death over us. It's the fear of death. And it's that power that Jesus came into the world to rip out of the hands of the devil. It says in Hebrews 2, Jesus tasted death for everyone so that by his death, he would destroy every reason that you and I have to be afraid of death. In other words, Jesus came to be one of us so that he might die in our place and do away with every single cause or accusation that the devil might have against us. He has fulfilled. Jesus has come in flesh and blood like us. He has united himself to us and he has fulfilled all righteousness in our place so that on the final day of judgment, he can present all of his people before his father without spot and without blemish. And the devil will have no power to accuse on that day. Jesus has made satisfaction for the judgment of the sins that we've already committed. He has made satisfaction to God's law and the demands of God's law that stand against us as sinners. The sting of death has been removed through the death of Christ our Savior. Death's victory over us has been destroyed. And now in the new birth, by the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you and I are enabled through Christ to face death with boldness and to even taunt it in light of its defeat. To say, death, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, who gives us the victory. Death is defeated. It is a defeated enemy, and it will never rise up to be anything that can threaten us with power. And our deliverance from the fear of death is a manifestation of the fact that Satan's power over us has been broken. I love the way Revelation 12.2 speaks about this. Excuse me, 12.10. After Christ, and you've got you to set this within the scene of Revelation 12. Most people think of Revelation 12 and that, that, that section of the book of Revelation as something that is merely future. And that is utterly wrong. Revelation 12 is not talking about something that happens in the future. It's talking about something that's already happened in the past. It's talking about the birth of the Messiah. It's talking about the Messiah dying and being caught up and ascending on high and being seated on the throne in heaven. At which point, Revelation 12 says, the devil and his angels are cast down. And so we're in this scene of the Christ, the Messiah of God, ascending into heaven in victory, being seated on the throne to rule and reign with his Father. And then we hear in Revelation 12.10, all of heaven rejoicing and singing, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. We're not waiting for the kingdom of God to come. We're not waiting for the authority of Christ to come. The authority of Christ has already come, and that is demonstrated by the fact that Jesus is on the throne in heaven. Now the kingdom and the salvation and the authority of our God and His Christ have come. Why? Why do they say that? Because or for the accuser of our brothers has been cast down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. People think that this is something that is going to happen in some far-off distant future when, when Christ returns and, and all the events of the rapture and, and all that stuff are unfolding. Beloved, the great defeat of our accuser is not waiting to happen at some point in the future. The great defeat of the devil himself has already taken place. Colossians 2.15, through the cross, God has put the devil and all of his minions to open shame through Jesus Christ. He has triumphed over them through the cross. We're not waiting for this enemy to be defeated. The defeat of our accuser happened at the ascension of our resurrected Savior. When God's answer to all of the devil's accusations against us ascended in victory into heaven, then the accuser himself was cast down. He was cast out. Guys, the relationship between the devil and God post-resurrection and post-ascension is not the same as what we see in the book of Job. It's not the same as what we see in Zechariah chapter 3, where he stands accusing Yeshua, the high priest. It's not the same. Because the moment that the devil enters into the courts of heaven, if he could now, the moment he would enter into that court with accusations against his people, who does he see seated on the throne in front of him? Does he not see the answer to those accusations? 
Does he not see God's demonstration of the fact that God will have the last word for all of his chosen people? Doesn't he see in Jesus the defeat of every argument and and accusation and charge that he could bring against the people of God? He does. He is a defeated enemy and he is cast out of heaven and now is his time for raging against the church. We're not preaching revelation, but I want to. I want to. I'm getting there. You guys are stoking those fires. When God's answer to all of the devil's accusations against us ascended in victory into heaven, the accuser himself was cast down. Now that doesn't mean that he will not rage against us. That doesn't mean that he will not make war upon us. The devil is still very able to kill you if God allows him to kill you. But the power behind that death stroke has been removed. That's the point. And the devil will never be anything more than a defeated enemy. Right? I mean, understanding this reality of the broken power of the devil over our lives is what gave Martin Luther the boldness to pin those words in a mighty fortress is our God. Whenever he says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage, we can endure it. We can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. You know what gives that kind of boldness? Knowing that you truly have been born again. And that you truly have been liberated from the fear of death by being brought into fellowship with the resurrected Jesus Christ. It's the fear of death that the devil wields against people in this world. It's the lack of fear of death that reveals the power of Jesus conquering victory in our lives. This is how Paul can say in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is not my defeat. To die is not something that I'm trying to stave off as long as I can. To die is not something that I'm afraid to experience. To die for me is gain. 2 Corinthians 5, we are longing to be clothed, not with that which is mortal and fleshly and defeated and corrupted. We are longing for the moment when Jesus will call us home to glory and we will shed these mortal bodies and we will forever be with the Lord. We will be swallowed up in life with Him. That's the boldness of the Christian. My friend, have you been liberated from this tyranny of the devil? Have you been set free from the devil's attempts to enslave you by the fear of death? You tell me that's not practical. John Wesley, you know what caused him to understand that he was not a believer yet in 1733? Was that one night they were caught in a storm and he was scared to death of dying. And he realized in that fear that he had not yet come to see the Savior who had conquered death as, as his true hope. 
Do you still fear death? Or is death something you are eagerly anticipating? That last final trial that God will call you to walk through. Do you see it as that? I remember one morning in prayer, and I'm not trying to say you need to be like me or think like me here, but I remember one morning in prayer, the Lord making death so sweet to me that it became to me something like an adventure. It's a moment when, when I'm going to pass out of this world and I am going to, I'm going to be forced to go on an adventure with the Lord on which no one else can go with me. Where it's, it's, it's just me and it's just Jesus and He's bringing me safely through the valley of the shadow of death. And I'll finally see with all the fullness that I can possibly take in the fact that He really is my shepherd and I shall not lack even in death. Have you been set free from the fear of death? Yeah, I don't want to deny the fact that even as believers, we can still experience the fear of death in a way that is not healthy, in a way that is not consistent with our proclamation of the gospel. I don't know what terrorizes you most about death if you are one who is afraid. I don't, I don't know exactly what the devil seeks to hold over your head and to keep you in bondage of fear. But I want you to understand this, that if you have been brought to new life in Christ, it does not matter how strongly the devil seeks to bring fear upon you. You can boldly take your stand in the truth of a resurrected Savior and you can declare to the devil that Jesus has died in my place. He has taken my sin upon himself. I am not afraid of you. I don't fear your accusations because my God has come to interpose on my behalf. Oh, believer, you, you have no reason to be afraid of death. None. Whether that's death by COVID or death by a car accident or death by murder or martyrdom, it doesn't matter. You don't need to be afraid of it. Jesus Christ has destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil. His blood was spilt in your place. Do you believe that? We profess to believe it, but do you really understand Jesus giving his life in place of yours? Oh, guys, just don't you feel the call of the gospel to rise up in faith and be bold in our God? You know the power that the devil's been wielding through the fear of death over the world the last three years? You see the insanity that has occurred as a result of that. We don't need to fear. Jesus has, I love this. I'm going on way too long on this point. Jesus has entered into the strong man's house. You know that, right? Jesus has bound the strong man, Matthew 12. How does he demonstrate the fact that he has entered into that strong man's house and he has bound him and he has defeated the devil? He demonstrates that by, the, by plundering his house. 
plundering those that used to belong to the house of the devil. Jesus has come as the stronger man, as the mightier man, as the conquering victor. He is the David facing down our Goliath. He is the the skull-crushing seed of of the woman, as, as he's described. Jesus has come, and he has bound the strong man we could not bind ourselves. And he is now plundering his house, and you are an example of that. You are a trophy of what Jesus has earned by his own sufferings and in his own death and by his own resurrection. You are a demonstration of his power if you are a believer. So don't be subject to the fear of the devil. You've been set free from that. When you were born again, you, entered in, you began to enter into the kingdom of God. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit began to give you every reason that you need to set you free from the power of Satan and from the domain of darkness through the truth of the gospel. You need to live in the fullness of that. Second way that we can know that we have entered into the kingdom of God now is in relation to sin. We know that we've entered into the kingdom of God when we've been set free from the power of Satan. We also know that we have entered into the kingdom of God when we have been set free from the power of sin. Very practical. Now that we can think of this in two ways, being set free from sin. First of all, believers rightly glory in the fact that sin can no longer exercise its condemning power over us, right? So we've been delivered from the power of sin because sin can no longer condemn us. It no longer has the right, the authority, the ability, the power to condemn us before God. And that's because our condemnation that we are due from our sin has already been settled in the condemnation of Christ on the cross, We glory in the reality that Jesus Christ has loved us so deeply that he willingly gave himself over to be condemned in our place. That's the gospel. That's our hope. But that is not the extent to which we experience freedom from the power of sin. That's not the only way that the new birth sets us free from the power of sin. Those whom sin can no longer condemn are those whom sin no longer controls. You guys get that? Those whom sin no longer can condemn are those whom sin no longer controls. In other words, those who are no longer condemned by sin are those who are no longer controlled by sin. Let's reword it. In fact, I would say that the greatest evidence that you, are, that you are no longer under God's condemnation for your sin is that you are no longer under the control of your sin. Romans 6.14, sin shall not be master over believers because we are not under the law, but we are under grace. Meaning, we are no longer under the condemning arm of the law. We now live according to the spirit, the law of the spirit of life that is given to us in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 2. 
We're set free from sin's control, which demonstrates the fact that we've been set free from sin's condemnation. Now, how does sin control you? How does sin control us? How does it wield its authority and its power in our lives? Before we are born again, sin wields control over us through the means of our desires and our affections. And that's what makes this so diabolical. It's not as though sin controls us from the outside. That would be one thing. And if that were indeed the extent of sin's control in our lives, then we would be able to stay that off, possibly. We could build up fences and walls of, of protection against temptation and, 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 and uh, the different ways that the devil seeks to bring us into uh, fallen, falling in sin. We could, we could try to take up measures of, you know, cutting off every arm and plucking out every eye and doing everything we possibly can in the flesh to protect us from sin. The problem is, our, is that sin's control over our lives goes much deeper than merely environmental factors or what we, what we fall into here and there or temptations that arise. The control that sin has over us is at the heart level. It's at the level of our desires. The other word for desires, those deep-seated rivers of emotion and desire that run in our lives, that's called the affections. Sin's control over us is so deep that it even attaches itself to our affections. It drives us to make choices that we make, sinful choices, because it controls what we desire to do. We see that, for example, right here in John chapter 3, in verses 19 through 20. According to John 3, 19, the greatest hindrance that you and I have to coming to Christ is a love for sin and darkness. That's an affection. That's, that's a deep desire. That's a, a soul attachment. Something that leads to action. We love sin. In fact, verse 20 says, the reason we do not come to the light of Christ is because we hate the light. So we love sin and we hate the light. Those are internal dispositions of the soul. That's how deeply sin's control has has impacted us, and that's the kind of power that sin has upon us. It exercises its control at the deepest level of our being, in our affections, our desires that we have. So if we would be saved, if we would be brought to salvation in Christ and come to the light and experience the cleansing effect of dwelling with God in the light, then that love affair with sin and darkness has to be severed. That internal hatred for God and His Christ has to be conquered. And if we put the pieces together here in John 3, Jesus teaches that this is the freedom that the Holy Spirit brings to us when He gives us the blessing of the new birth. He breaks the power of canceled sin in our hearts. He shatters that love affair that we have with evil and He replaces those desires with a sincere love and devotion to God through Christ. And really, if you think about this, this, this is what demonstrates and puts on display the depth of Christ conquering power over sin. 
Not merely that He removes us from the presence of sin or that He removes temptations from us as believers and they're never going to come against us again. You and I both know who have walked with the Lord for any length of time, we know that temptation is still something that is very real and something we still have to war against in our daily lives. Jesus demonstrates the greatness of His power in salvation not by removing us from temptations, or from opportunities to sin, but by giving us hearts that no longer want to sin when we are bombarded by temptations. He gives us holy desires that can withstand the onslaught of evil in this world. When pornography rises up on the computer, our commitment at the heart level to Christ is greater than our desire to gratify that desire of the flesh. Our affection to love our wives and our husbands alone, the one that the Lord has given us, our affections to do that, our commitment to uphold our covenant in marriage comes from something much deeper than merely the resolve of our own human will. It comes from the fact that we cannot sin against God by sinning against our spouse. The strength that we have not to take the bottle to our lips and drown our cares and our sorrows with liquor. Where does that come from? Where does that come from where something so strong and has such a grip of power upon us, such as alcohol or drugs? How can we find liberation from that? Jesus guarantees liberation from that for all of his people by giving them hearts that no longer want to do those things. And he provides that in the new birth. That's a demonstration of his great power and salvation. So that as a result of having been given this new heart with new desires, all of a sudden we find that the sin that used to give us so much pleasure and joy, the sin that we used to love and, and relish and even pet and stroke, the sin that we held so dear and the sin that even gave us a sense of purpose and meaning in our lives. Once we have experienced the new birth, all of a sudden, we no longer want to walk in those ways of sin. Now, those sins that used to be so desirable and so pleasurable to us, so pleasing, they now feel like poison in our hearts and rot in our bones. Our spiritual taste buds have been changed and we've been made new creatures who can no longer stomach the sin that we used to love. But you, want to, you want to evaluate your life and determine whether or not you have experienced a new birth? It's right there. Tell me your relationship with sin and I will tell you your relationship with God. And don't think of sin merely in the realm of the big sins, right? Homosexuality, transgenderism, Maybe for some of you it's leftism, right? No one on the left can be saved ever. Committed the unpardonable sins. Maybe it's, you know, we think of sin as murder. We think of sin as adultery, drug abuse, alcoholism, all these big sins. But what you need to understand is that the big sin in the Bible is not those things. Jesus says those are merely the manifestation of the greater and the deeper sin that is at work in our lives. That sin of lack of love for God. Lack of love for our neighbor. That's what drives us to excess. That's what drives us to 
seeking to satisfy that soul craving in our hearts through things, stuff, activities, entertainment, movies, music, clothing, gaining attention from other people by the way we dress. All that comes from a deeper problem, which is our lack of love to God. And the great power of the gospel is that Jesus gives us the answer to that great problem in the new birth. He gives us new hearts with new desires. I love the way Galatians 5.24 describes this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just pay attention to what it says. Galatians 5.24, it says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? They have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now what passions and what desires is Paul talking about? Well, he's just given us a list in verses 19 through 21, right? Right, he's talking about carousing. He's talking about immorality. He's talking about drunkenness. He's talking about factionalism and, and rivalries and outbursts of anger and uh, disputes and selfish ambition and pride. He's talking about those kinds of things. And he says, everyone who, who belongs to Christ, those who have been made members of the kingdom of Christ, have experienced a radical change in their hearts between those passions and desires of the flesh and the passions and desires they now have. The passions and the desires of the flesh for those who belong to Christ, they have been crucified in them. That means they've been put to death. That doesn't mean that a believer will never experience sin. It doesn't mean a believer will never walk in sin for seasons in, in his or her life. But what it does mean is that something fundamentally has shifted in the heart of a true believer where that true believer may fall into sin, but that true believer no longer delights in sin. That true believer may stumble along the way into sin, but that true believer is not seeking sin out. Because the passion and the desire to run in the ways of sin has been crucified through their union with Christ. See, this is, this is why we must always maintain that the new birth is something that is supernatural. It's something that goes beyond the ability of, 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 of humanity to will or to do on its own. The new birth is a miracle from God, a miracle of new creation sparked in the life of every true believer. And if we've experienced that, then we will also, it will be manifest by the fact that we will no longer have desires to live and run in the ways of sin. We will be set free from that desire. And our desires will be holy and true unto the Lord. Edward, Edward Palmer, I'll finish this section on this. Edward Palmer wrote in his book, The Person and the Ministry of the Holy Spirit, the traditional Calvinistic perspective, those of you who want to know. He wrote that when we are born again, the result is that old sins are going to be put away. New, okay, <laughs> I can't pass that over. Old sins are going to be put away in the new birth. Have your old sins been put away? Not that you don't struggle with them, not that they don't rear their ugly head every now and then, but in a real definitive way, have you broken your relationship with the old sins? Or have the old sins relationship with you been broken? The result of the new birth is that the old sins are going to be put away. New virtues will take their place. 
when it was formerly impossible to overcome sins and hate towards God, all is different now in the new birth. For the Holy Spirit has planted new inclinations and new desires in place of the old. That's regeneration. That's being born again. And so when this radical break with sin on a heart level has taken place, then my friend, you can know with assurance that you have indeed experienced the new birth. So in these two ways, very practical ways, I see evidence of having experienced a new birth. You are set free from the power of Satan and you are set free from the power of sin in real tangible ways. Now just some concluding thoughts about pursuing assurance. I'm going to be very brief on this, okay? I've got three concluding thoughts on pursuing assurance. Number one, when we start examining our lives and trying to gain assurance of the Lord's work in our lives, very often we can come away with conflicting results in a, in a, in a disillusioned heart. Because we see the sin and the true state of our souls far more clearly now that we're believers than we ever did before we were believers. And so now we see more sin than we used to see. And that can cause us to doubt and that can cause us to fear and believe that we haven't been saved. I want to offer some advice in relation to pursuing this assurance. Number one, so that we don't fall into that trap. Number one, assurance of salvation is not the same thing as possessing salvation. Being assured that you are saved is not the same thing as actually possessing salvation. Some people think that you know, they're so sure that they're saved, nothing can cause them to doubt it, when in fact they actually have never experienced a new birth. Other people have such a sensitive conscience before the Lord and such an awareness of their sin that it's impossible for them to gain any sense of assurance, even though they truly have been born again. This is why Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, exhorts true believers to show the same diligence so as to realize full assurance of hope until the end. Now that is a command towards believers. That's not a command towards unbelievers. What does that mean if it doesn't mean that believers can be saved and yet still not have assurance of that salvation? If they have to pursue it. The 1689, again, to quote 1689 Baptist Confession at chapter 18, verse, uh, paragraph 3. It affirms this belief and this distinction between assurance and actual salvation when it says, infallible assurance does not belong to the essence of faith, but a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before becoming a partaker of it. My friend, just because you doubt that you are a believer or that you are saved does not make you necessarily an unbeliever. It does not mean necessarily that you are not saved. So don't fall into that trap. Number two, assurance is not found in sinlessness or perfectionism. There was a comment on our YouTube channel last week from the message last week uh, from someone saying that if you have experienced the new birth, you will not sin anymore. And I tried to graciously respond to that. Hopefully this person will come to see the error of what was written. But that's not true at all. In fact, believers will never experience sinless, sinless perfection until the day that Jesus Christ fully sets us free from these bodies of death. That's Romans 7, 24 and 25. 
However, in every true believer's life, these evidences of having been born again will be present in some measure. They may not be perfectly present, but they will be truly present. Thomas Watson had a very helpful syllogism in seeking to gain assurance. And just follow through with this with me. I know I'm going a minute longer here, but stay with me. Assurance is not found in sinlessness or in perfectionism. Rather, Thomas Watson says in his book, A Body of Divinity, what is assurance? He says, it's not any vocal or audible voice. It's not brought to us by the help of an angel or revelation. Assurance consists of a practical syllogism, that is a form of reasoning. Now here's that form of reasoning. He says, the word says, he that fears and loves God is loved of God. That's the major proposition. Then our conscience makes the minor proposition. Well, I fear God and I love God. Then the Spirit makes the conclusion. Therefore, thou art loved of God. And this is what the Apostle calls the witnessing of the Spirit with our spirits, that we are children of God. Do you, you follow that reasoning there? The Word says, those who love and fear God belong to God. My conscience says, I love God, not perfectly, but I really do love Him. And I really do fear Him. There's something true in me that, that matches what I see in the Word right there. Then the Spirit brings the conclusion, therefore, you belong to God. That's how assurance is gained. It's not gained by some special revelation or seeing perfectionism in our lives. It's simply discerned and received by seeing the evidences of God's grace in our lives truly present, even if they're not perfectly present. All right, now number three. What do I do if I don't see evidences of being born again in my life? Or what do I do if I'm not sure if I see evidence of being born again in my life? If after all this examination about the new birth, I am not able to say with a clean conscience and with sincere conviction, the Holy Spirit has indeed caused me to be born again. If I can't say that with a clear conscience, what am I supposed to do? You just told me last week, Seth, that I can't do anything to cause the new birth to come about. So if I don't see evidence of the new birth in my life, what am I supposed to do? Just go about living my life and just doing what I want to do until maybe someday, if God so pleases, He'll bring the work of the new birth in on me? Just keep eating and drinking and being merry because unless God moves on, in on my life, I'm going to die and go to hell anyway, so I might as well enjoy my time now. Is that how we're supposed to respond when we don't see evidence of the new birth in our lives? Thank you. No, that's not. That's not. If that describes you, then let me give you two, let, let, me, let me urge two things upon you, all right? Number one, if you are filled with doubts about whether you've been born again, let me urge you not to try to hide those doubts. Don't cover up those doubts with fig leaves, in other words. When God came to Adam and Eve after they sinned, whether they, 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 they hid their nakedness with fig leaves. Do you think that convinced God that they weren't naked anymore? Wasn't that just a demonstration of the reality that they recognized they were naked? 
When you have doubts, that is God bringing you, bringing you to the point where you recognize that you are naked. The last thing you want to do at that point is try and get some fig leaves to cover up that nakedness. Don't try to hide your doubts. You don't think God knows that you're doubting? You don't think God can handle those doubts if you pour them out to Him? I assure you, He can. Don't hide your doubts from the Lord. It, it, it makes no sense to do that anyway. You need to recognize that when you are brought to the point where you are doubting whether you actually belong to God, that is God awakening you to see things that are true about yourself. And he doesn't want you to ignore them. He wants you to deal with them. Which brings me to my second point that I would urge upon you if you're doubting whether you've been born again. In light of those doubts, come to Jesus. This is 11, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, the context here is where Jesus is glorifying God, his Father, for hiding the gospel from people and choosing who he will and will not reveal Christ to. Jesus doing the same thing. Jesus is exalting the sovereignty of God over salvation in this section of Scripture, and he gets to the end of it and he says, come to me. Don't let election and God's sovereignty and salvation keep you from running all out to the Lord Jesus Christ. John 6, 37, Jesus promises, none who come to me will I ever cast out. You need to take Jesus at his word, and you need to run to him. You will find his arms wide open and ready to receive you. Let's pray together. Lord of books and words, there is no end. Lord, we can blow enough hot air to fill a balloon and it'll never accomplish anything apart from your grace. So we pray by your grace you would come and that you would anoint your word in our hearts. You would give us assurance, Lord, so that we might live fuller lives of praise and worship to you. Lord, that we would truly, that we would freely and wholeheartedly offer our bodies to you as a living sacrifice in response to an assured sense of the great grace that you have dumped upon us in Christ. Lord, fill us with assurance so that we might live more fully for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hear the benediction from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. It is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Yet for this reason I was shown mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might demonstrate all his patience as an example for those who would believe upon him for eternal life. Now to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. May you go in the peace and in the hope of that reality.
Amen.